We're reading today from Genesis chapter 2 and from Proverbs 31. So Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 2 to, uh, sorry, at verse 4 to 7 and then verses 15 to 23. These are God's words. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. And no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was not a man to work the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And Yahweh God formed man out of the dirt of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life, and man became a living soul. And Yahweh God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, dying thou shalt die. And Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And out of the ground Yahweh God formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them unto the man to see what he would call them. And whatsoever the man called every living soul, that was the name thereof. And the man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for man there was not found a help meet for him. And Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his sides, and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the side which Yahweh God had taken from the man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Now Proverbs 31, from verses 10 to 31. A worthy woman who can find, for her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband trusteth in her, and he shall have no lack of gain. She doeth him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax, and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant ships, she bringeth her bread from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night, and giveth food to her house, and their task to her maidens. She considereth a field, and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hands she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength, and maketh strong her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor. Yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her house, for all her house are clothed with scarlet. She maketh for herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She maketh linen garments and selleth them and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laugheth at the time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and the law of kindness is on her tongue. She looketh well to the ways of her house and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also. And he praiseth her, saying, Many daughters have done worthily, but thou excellest all. Grace is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth Yahweh, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. 
Let us thank God for the reading of his word. Father, thank you for the gift of your scriptures. And just as you breathe them out by your Holy Spirit, please now send that spirit to help me rightly divide them and distribute them to each as he has need for the building up of your body here on earth. Plant it in our hearts and make it grow that we may bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Amen. You may be seated. The past couple of weeks, we've been looking at what Scripture tells us about our vocation. Do you remember what vocation means, Morris? A vocation is our calling. It is what God calls us to do. And what does God call us to do? Well, we have seen that he created mankind to take up and share in his work of dominion, of ordering the creation that he made, dividing and filling, shaping and refining the world. We are like God in this way, which is why scripture says that we are made in his image and likeness. We also saw that there is a deep theological truth revealed in the way that God makes man. It's easy to skip over the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve as just another weird detail in, in an already fairly strange story. Well, God had to create Adam somehow, so he decided to just shape some dirt like a man and breathe into it, and then he'd already done that with Adam, so he did it differently with Eve just to keep it interesting. But these things are written for our instruction. And reflecting carefully on how mankind was made, the actual mechanism, reveals important insights about our purpose, about our relationship with God, with the world, and with each other. We've seen, for example, that how man is made is perfectly fitted to what man must do. God breathes spirit into dirt, and one way to understand this is that he is expressing the spiritual reality of his image in a physical way. When you stamp the image of God into dirt, it becomes a living man. So God impresses this heavenly pattern of his image into a material form, a man, in order for that man to continue shaping the world to further express heavenly patterns. To make the world look the way God wants, it needs to be God-shaped, as it were. This sounds very strange to modern ears, but it helps us to see how our daily work participates in God's own work. We are called to bring God's will down to earth, to shape the world in a way that expresses God's will, right? That is what we pray that he would help us with in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've seen how our daily work is foundational to this and how even though it often seems very boring and mundane, that is actually how God works in history to gradually shape the world after his own image. Every one of us exercises dominion over what God has given us and God intends for us to do this in such a way that when we are finished, the world looks more like his kingdom than it did when we started. So even though our work is modest and humble and often we want to resent it, 
It is working toward and bringing about an eternal weight of glory and preparing us for things that we can't even imagine in the new heavens and the new earth in the resurrection. We don't really have any idea what the work that we will do there is, but we know that we will continue to participate with God in reigning over creation, exercising dominion, stamping his will into the created world. We also know that it will be restful work, thank God, a work without toil or frustration, a work without anger or resentment, a work that is blessed and fruitful and that we participate in joyfully through our Lord Jesus Christ. But so far, we have only really looked at this question in terms of jobs or occupations or careers. That's all very well for us men because a great deal of the dominion that we exercise, the work that we do, is tied up with that. But what about the ladies? Are they supposed to get jobs too? That doesn't seem quite right. So what are they supposed to do? Today I want to make a start towards answering this, and then I will hopefully bring it together in a vision for both man and woman in their mutual work next week. I make no promises. But to do that, to present this mutual vision, we need to lay some groundwork. So we know that mankind is made in the image of God, But men and women don't image God in exactly the same way. You may have noticed that your wife is better looking than you are, for instance, and shaped a bit differently, while for your own part, you have the ability to not just reach the pickle jar on the top shelf, but also open it without assistance. These are not accidental curiosities. They are not just external facts. You are not a sexless spirit stuck into whatever meat puppet God had lying around at the moment you were conceived. God's sitting there, "Ah, I guess I'll just put this spirit into a male body and this one could go in a female body. No, you're not a soul with no gender that happens to be operating a male body or a female body. You are a specific image of God expressed in material form. You are what dirt looks like when the particular spiritual pattern of God's image, that is you, is impressed into it. Which means that your male body is an expression of your male spirit. You are male all the way down and all the way in. And the same goes for ladies. You are female all the way down and all the way in. Every part of you, everything that is you, is either male or female and images God as male or female. So we've seen a fair bit about how Adam images God, what it means that he is made from the dirt. We also know that he names all the animals, showing his authority over them. But then God makes Eve, and he makes her differently to how he made Adam. And Adam names her too, showing his authority over her as well. But he doesn't have authority over her in the same way as he has authority over the animals, because, for the obvious reason, she is not an animal. That's the whole purpose of her being made. There is no helper among the animals that is suitable for aiding Adam in the work of impressing God's will into the earth. This is liturgical work, religious work. Animals can't do it. They might be able to assist Adam, but they cannot assist him religiously. They are not meat for the task. Meat means fitted, suitable, appropriate, proper. Think of it like um, it meets the qualifications. That's what meat means. 
So we read in Genesis 2.18, the man is not fitted to do this religious work alone, and he needs a help that is meet to him. The Hebrew actually says literally a help that is opposite him. As we've seen so often, God captures a great depth with a single simple word. Eve is opposite Adam in the sense that she is, she faces him like a reflection. But she's also opposite him in the sense that she corresponds to him in a reverse way, an inverse correspondence. She does for him what he cannot do for himself. There are things Adam can't do. He is incomplete in his ability to exercise dominion and impress the heavenly pattern into the world. An obvious thing that he can't do is he cannot reproduce himself. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm saying that woman completes man as if a man is not a complete person without his wife or vice versa. That's some very insidious and destructive nonsense that's crept into uh, Western thinking, but also into the Western church in modern times. And that is not what I mean. Adam and Eve are both complete in themselves. They are fully formed people and they lack nothing in their intended way of imaging God. But how Adam images God and how Eve images God are different. And so individually, they are incomplete with respect to the purpose of mankind as a whole. This is obvious. A man is not a complete mankind. Man and woman are a complete mankind. Individually, neither of them can make the earth as it is in heaven. Not completely. You can think of it roughly in terms of forming and filling. Adam can form the world, but he can't fill it. He can chop down trees, but he can't have babies. Eve can fill, but she struggles to form. Men have twice the upper body strength of women, and that is not an accident. It is for a reason. But together, when you put Adam and Eve, when you put their virtues and abilities together, they supply, they each supply what the other lacks. They fill out and perfect mankind as a single whole that is perfectly fitted to impress the heavenly pattern onto the earth. So the picture in Genesis 2 is of two facing parts, which while functional and complete in themselves for what they individually must do, also fit together in such a way that they become a greater whole. And this hints at why God makes Eve differently to Adam. He doesn't just make her the same way from the dirt. He creates her from Adam's side. And since, he, uh, since how he created Adam teaches us important things about mankind, we should probably ask, what about Eve? What does the way that God makes her teach us? I'm only going to touch the surface of this. Uh, it would be a very, <laughs> would require a seminar to go into too much detail, but let's compare the two creation methods. God makes Adam from the ground because the ground is the chief object of his work. He is made from the ground, from the earth, to tend the earth. So when we see that Eve is made from Adam, that teaches us a similar thing about her. Adam is the chief object of her work. She is made from the man in order to tend the man, as it were. This is a terribly unpopular thing to say in the modern day, of course, but 
Let me ask you. Do little boys plan out their weddings in careful detail 15 years before they have a chance of getting married? Or do little girls dream of operating a digger? You see, each sex is well-suited to the work that they are made for from the earliest age. God designed it that way. Now, if a woman is made to tend the man, then how does this affect our understanding of her calling? What is her daily work supposed to look like compared to the man's? We talked a couple of weeks ago about things like felling trees and operating machines and building websites and putting insulation into walls, which is, roughly speaking, man's work. And these things can be mind-numbing and physically draining and even soul-destroying if you do them for too long. And we talked all about that and how much of an encouragement it is to know that even in that toil, we are participating in the work of God. But what about women? How should they be thinking about their work? What is their work? If they are made to tend their husbands, is their work just in making dinner for when he gets home after that long day of toil and then giving him a back rub? Is that a woman's job? Is that her calling? Spending a life waiting on her husband hand and foot? I regret to inform you that that is not the case. That is not what we read in Proverbs 31, is it? Of course not. Because woman is made as a help fitted to the man to help him what? Relax after a long day? No, to help him exercise dominion. To help him establish God's will on earth as it is in heaven. That is the work that we are all called to do both men and women, mankind. The difference between men and women is that men do this largely while looking out to the world, to the earth, and women do this largely while looking to their husbands. The man's effect on the world, you could say, is immediate and direct, and the woman's effect on the world is indirect. It is mediated through her husband. Look at Proverbs 31 again. This is a woman whose price is far above rubies. In other words, if you think this through for a second, no money in the world could buy servants that are worth what she is worth. But to who? She's not, worth, she's not worth far above rubies in the abstract. The whole point is that she is worth far above rubies to her husband. The whole passage starts with and is directed by the idea of a man finding this woman, of her husband's heart trusting in her. She is of great value to him because of all the ways in which she works. But something that we don't easily notice in the modern day is while her work is in the world, it is not aimed at the world. The passage begins and ends with her husband's delight in her. And of course, at the end of the passage, her children's praise is also added. So why do they praise her? Well, that is connected to the work she does. Look at all the things she does. Verse 11. She increases what her husband has. Her husband has no lack of gain. The Hebrew word here literally means spoils or plunder. So she is depicted as the cause of such increase in his house as one might get by going out and plundering an enemy in war. 
which is a very interesting connection in light of what we saw when Jared preached through Psalm 127. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the sons of youth. Well, who is it that provides these sons, if not his wife? But that is not all that she does. It is true that childbearing is of great importance to womanhood, but a woman does not continue to have children forever, and she does not continue to raise them forever. And of course, some women do not have children. Some women do not have husbands. I should say at this point that there are certainly many women who do not have husbands, and in situations like that, this kind of work doesn't get directed out towards the world, but ideally is directed inward toward the church. So providing children is one of the most important ways that a woman who is married builds her house up early on. But there is much else that she does besides that. Look at verse 12. She does her husband good and not evil all the days of her life. This is her continual focus. Everything she does in this passage is oriented toward the good of her husband. She seeks his good always just as the body seeks the good of the head and the head rejoices in the work of the body. This is not a high-powered modern woman advancing her career. This is a high-powered biblical woman advancing her husband's good and thus building up a house with him. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands, verse 13, so she is not above manual labor. But step back for a moment and ask, where does she get the wool and the flax? We're not told, but the implication surely is that it is provided by her husband in some way, either through their own sheep and their flax plants or through the money that he has made so that she can go and buy these things. The whole point of him never wanting for gain is that he can entrust what he already has, his resources, to her. And then she will increase it. So you see also that she does not work only in the house. She brings her bread from afar, verse 14. She considers a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard. She isn't only working inside the home, but she's not outside the home in the same way her husband is. He is in the gates, judging with the elders of the land. Remember, Proverbs is written to Solomon's son, so it makes sense to think of the husband here as a king. Much of his work is directed toward the good of the whole land, just like Adam's work. But the work that his wife does is directed toward the good of their household. Now, what I don't mean for you to understand here, or to take away, is that the man gets to neglect his household, that he looks after the land instead of his household. Unfortunately, we know that because of the fall, that can happen, and often does. You see that in the case of high-powered CEOs, people that build empires of various sorts, their families are almost always neglected. But the idea here is that the way in which the husband serves his house is largely outward-focused. We are not kings, but we all bring in money for our houses by way of building up the world more generally. I build websites for other people. Yaku makes machinery for other people. Jared cuts down trees for other people. Mark installs insulation for other people. There is a pattern here which is common to man. We labor in building up the world. And we exchange that labor for money by which to build up our own houses. Now, I'm not saying that that is always the ideal. 
And I'm also not saying that women cannot participate in this pattern as well. We, we see here the worthy woman selling her linen, for instance. But in general, wives have a much more privileged position. They, they have the honor of their labor largely going directly to building their houses, while men's labor largely goes to building the world. In this regard, it is especially intriguing that a lot of time is devoted in this passage to clothing and to food. How does a woman build up her house? Well, in Proverbs 31, we see that clothing and food are two major ways in which she is said to build her house. She obtains wool and flax, verse 13, which of course are used to make clothes. She brings bread and rises early to give food to her house in verse 14. She plants a vineyard, which of course produces grapes for wine, verse 16. She works the loom, verse 19, which is what you use to weave cloth. She provides for the poor and the needy as well as her own house, which probably refers to both clothes and food. As James would say, be warm, be filled. She clothes her house in scarlet, verse 21. She makes coverings and fine linen and purple cloths in verse 22 and 24. Incidentally, remember that Lydia was a seller of purple in Acts 16, 14. I think that we're supposed to make a connection between Lydia and the worthy woman because of that purple cloth. Then right between verses 22 and 24, we learn something quite interesting. We learn that her husband is known in the gates. The way that this is positioned makes us want to ask, how is he known? Because the implication is that he is known by what he wears. How can he be recognized? Well, he is clothed distinctively by his wife. Strength and dignity are her clothing. Verse 25, we'll come back to that. And she opens her mouth with wisdom and the law of kindness is on her tongue. Verse 26, which may not sound like food, but we know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So she does not just provide only food, but also wisdom. She is a wise woman, Titus 2 woman. And finally, verse 27, we see that she eats not the bread of idleness. Well, why all of this emphasis on food and clothing? Is that what women's work amounts to? Food is probably obvious. Even today, women and food go together. No matter how liberal or progressive you get, you will never shake the expectation that women should know how to cook or that it is at least less shameful for a man to not know. This is built into us at a deep instinctive level and is yet another example of differences between men and women that God designed into us so that we would know what we are for. But I don't want you to think, again, here's a misunderstanding that would easily, be ha easily happen in the modern day. I don't want you to think that men should not be able to cook. What kind of a useless man cannot cook? Unfortunately, I have to say this because there is something perversely disordered about the modern mind where if you say something like, women should be able to do X, automatically the response is, so men shouldn't do X. Somehow we have become trained to think in this exclusive reasoning method. We instinctively chop everything up and divide it and treat them as mutually exclusive pieces once we've divided them up. So I say, it's good to be a man, and all the feminists say, oh, you're saying it's bad to be a woman? No, I'm saying it's good to be a man. <laughs> Women should know how to cook. So you're saying men shouldn't? No, I am saying that women should know how to cook. Because why? 
Well, food is one of the most primal and elemental ways in which we are nurtured and sustained. And women are designed to nurture and sustain. Think about this. They literally provide food for their babies from their own bodies. For the first several months of that child's life, it is exclusively nurtured and sustained from its mother's body. Men do not do this. Men are not supposed to have... Well, you, you get the idea. That is supposed to teach us something. It teaches us about what women are. Just as women sustain their babies, it is their special privilege also to sustain and nurture their households. And one of the most basic ways in which they do this, one of the most basic symbols that God has built into creation, is food. Hospitality is not exclusive to women, but it is a special purview of women, something that women do in a special way. Their husbands must be involved. They must support it. But women are uniquely gifted in it. Providing food is a model way of nurturing and sustaining. It's like an exemplary way of doing this, a way that is so clear and obvious and basic that it teaches us very clearly the elementary principles of nurturing and sustaining so that we might have a solid foundation for developing our understanding of that further and learning more about how women can do it in other ways. But is that all women are for? What about the clothing? Even more emphasis is placed on the clothes that this worthy woman makes than the food. Is clothing about nurturing and sustaining? You could say it is in a sense, but I don't think that is really what the passage is getting at. Clothing is quite a different symbol in scripture, and it serves a different purpose that clues us into another of the things that women are especially created for. As with food, we still have some sense of this in the modern day, at least in the stereotypes, the cliches, the traditional ideas, the mother is the one who makes the clothes for the family. It doesn't really happen that much anymore, except in very traditional kinds of families. But then does that mean that you're failing as a wife and mother if you aren't making all of your clothes by hand and maybe selling them on the side for some extra income? I actually don't think that that is the point here. And one key reason for that is verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing. This points us towards how clothing has a deeper meaning. It is certainly good for women to have these skills at clothing making, to use them to clothe their households, but Proverbs 31 is meaning to teach us something deeper than that. It isn't teaching us that there is something wrong with buying clothes for your family instead of making them. Its emphasis on clothes, in fact, is so great, so exaggerated, so over the top, that I think that we are supposed to ask, why? It doesn't seem likely that the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us that a woman's worth is so bound up just with making clothes. I think the clothes represent something more fundamental about her work in relation to her husband. I think that they are meant to teach us something which goes back to Genesis 2 and how God made Eve. Because one of the things that we learn in Genesis 2 is that the woman is the glory 
of the man. Now, that's not necessarily very obvious in Genesis 2, so 1 Corinthians 11 is helpful. A man indeed ought not to have his head covered, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. For neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. That's 1 Corinthians 11, 7-9. But where do you think Paul learned this? It was in Genesis 2, at least partly in Genesis 2. Paul knew that the creation account in Genesis 1 shows us the world going through a process of progressive glorification. Every time the world descends into darkness, it rises back out again, and God adds more glory to it. There is evening, and there is morning, and then God does something to make the creation better, more majestical. So when Paul sees exactly the same pattern with Adam, he sees Adam descend into darkness and rise back up again, he is able to put two and two together. Adam descends into sleep and Eve is made out of his side and then Adam rises out of sleep and Eve is presented to him. And so Paul concludes that just as the world was glorified after coming out of darkness each day, so Adam is glorified after coming out of sleep, which means that Eve is his glory. Once Eve is made, there is no more glory that God adds to creation. She is the pinnacle. After this, all the glory that is added is by mankind, and the first glory that is added is actually recorded for us. It is a poem from Adam about Eve. Poetry, if you think about this, poetry is glorified speech. And Adam glorifies his glory, Eve, this now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. These are the first words of man recorded. And just as Adam glorifies Eve, we see that the husband in Proverbs 31 praises his wife, saying, many daughters have done worthily, but thou excellest them all. He glorifies her because she has glorified him. She is his glory. And if that sounds familiar, that's a rabbit trail you can follow this afternoon in your own time by reading the Gospel of John. The point that I want to leave you with for now is that woman is made as the glory of John. Sorry, the glory of man. <laughs> the glory of man. And I believe the repeated emphasis on clothing in Proverbs 31 is meant to draw us back to this point. You see the kind of clothing it is. It is magnificent clothing. Glorious clothing. Clothing in scripture glorifies. Scarlet and purple especially are royal colors. Fine linen is royal garb or high priestly garb. You can take your pick. So rather than reading Proverbs 31 as trying to teach us that women should make heaps of clothes for their families, that's not wrong, but clothing making is not necessarily integral to women's work. I think the greater point of the text is that women should clothe their houses, their children, and especially their husbands in glory. Their husbands are recognized in the gates because of the glory of their wives. It is the special privilege of women to glorify God by glorifying his image in their husbands. Next week, I want to pick up this idea and probe what it means in more depth. Because... What does it mean? It sounds crazy to modern ears. So what does it look like in practice? What are some ways 
that women can do it? What are some ways that women are tempted to neglect this work, some sins that they fall into? And also, what is our role as men in it? How can we help this work or hinder it? Because if we are supposed to be the ones that are glorified, we need to have something worth glorifying. How can we help or hinder our wives? These are thorny questions with very practical applications, and I want to devote appropriate time to them, having laid this groundwork. So God willing, we will take that up next time.